0: The joy of the Lord is something that a born-again Christian is entitled to. Joy is really something that people want the most in life, but they seem to have the least. But it is something that God's people have access to, this thing of joy. Do you have that joy as a child of God? Now, the apostle here is winding up his final epistle to this little church at Thessalonica, And he has some wonderful things to say. And there's some golden nuggets, folks, in these two verses that we have to mine out of them today as we talk about the joy of obedience.
1: The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skevy.
0: Let's take our Bibles, please, and turn to the book of 2 Thessalonians and the third chapter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We have been going through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians verse by verse and they were written because of some false doctrine that had seeped into this young fledgling baby church there in northern Greece at what is today Thessaloniki. And Paul has to write a letter, actually two letters, because some false prophets had come to town and they had started to teach that the rapture had already happened and these folks had been left behind. And, and there was panic there, and <clears throat> kind of the chicken little syndrome, you know, sky is falling, and so Paul here has to write and, and, and squelch all that, and calm all that down, and, and he's done that, and so now he kind of flips the coin over, and he's pouring in some oil, he's encouraging, he is exhorting, and we pick it up in verse 4, just two verses today, verse 4 and 5. Paul says, and we have confidence in the Lord touching you that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. And the Lord directs your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. Back to verse 4, it's our text. Paul says, and we have confidence in the Lord touching you that ye both do and will do The things which are commanded you. You read on and he finds the result of that is things like love and joy. And we're going to be talking today about the joy of obedience. The joy of obedience. But let's pray first, shall we? Father, we come before thee and we're so thankful now for this opportunity and privilege to assemble in your house with your people once again. Thank you for your word you've preserved for us. And please bless it now as it's open Please speak to our hearts and accomplish your holy and perfect will in it all, and we'll thank you for it. We pray now and ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. A number of years ago, there was a Russian countess who got saved, gloriously saved, and was so on fire and so in love with the Lord that the Tsar of Russia was irked with her, very displeased with her. In fact, he had her thrown in a dungeon and a prison with the dregs of society for 24 hours, thinking it would cure her and teach her a lesson well anyway he brought her out of the prison at the end of 24 hours and with a, a sinister smile he said are you ready to renounce your silly faith now and she said oh no czar she said I have found more happiness in 24 hours in a dungeon with Jesus than I've known in a lifetime in the court of the czar she had the joy of the Lord And the joy of the Lord is something that a born-again Christian is entitled to. Joy is really something that people want the most in life, but they seem to have the least. But it is something that God's people have access to, this thing of joy. The late great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, There is a marvelous medicinal power in joy. Most medicines are distasteful, but this, which is the best of all medicines, is sweet to the taste. And comforting to the heart. This blessed joy is very contagious. One foul spirit brings a plague into the house. One person who is wretched seems to stop the birds from singing wherever he goes. But the grace of joy is contagious. Holy joy will oil the wheels of your life's machinery. Holy joy will strengthen you for your daily labor. Holy joy will beautify you and give you an influence over the lives of others. Do you have that joy as a child of God? Now, the apostle here is is winding up his final epistle to this little church at at Thessalonica, and he has some wonderful things to say, and there's some golden nuggets, folks, in these two verses that we have to mine out of them today as we talk about the joy of obedience. As we do, we see, first of all, what I call trustworthy saints. We find this in verse number 4. Notice, Paul says, and we have confidence in the Lord touching you, that you both do and will do the things which we command you. Paul is speaking to them there about a confidence that he has in them. But note, first of all, in verse 4, he mentions we have confidence in the Lord touching you. Do you have confidence in the Lord, or does your confidence in God ever wane I've had times in my Christian life when uh, I wasn't trusting God the way I should, didn't have the confidence in Him that I should. And as a child of God, we ought to be able to have a confidence in the Lord. And Paul writes about that here. We read this in Psalm 118.8, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Isn't that the truth? It is better to put trust in the Lord than to put your confidence in a man. In fact, we read in Proverbs twenty-five, nineteen, that confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint. Anyone here ever had a, a broken tooth or a foot out of joint? And it's no fun. And the Bible makes a comparison here and it says confidence in an unfaithful man in a time of trouble, when you really need him, is like that. It's like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint. And so Paul's confidence is not misplaced. His confidence is not in people. And the Bible warns us against that. You know, Job had an awful time come into his life when disaster after disaster happened to him like waves rolling over him of a tidal wave. And it was one piece of bad news after another. And his wife even says, why don't you just curse God and die? Just give up on God. Don't have confidence in God anymore. His friends came and they ragged on him with sarcasm for countless chapters in the Bible. And and you would think Job would finally wave up the white flag and say, all right, I don't trust God anymore. But here's what he said. In Job 13, 15, he said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. That's a confidence in God. Paul here talks about a confidence in the Lord. And we ought to be able to have that confidence in the Lord. It will never be misplaced. Job said it so well, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Moses had a confidence in God, really at a time when so many that were following him did not. He got out of Egyptian bondage with two, three million Jews out there in the wilderness. And Pharaoh's army comes after him. Mad about the devastation of the land back there in Egypt. Mad about the death of their firstborn sons in Egypt. And so they've got Moses and company pinned in at the Red Sea. And the people look forward out into the sea and that looks hopeless. And they look back at the Egyptian army and that looks terrifying. They forgot to look up, didn't they? All but Moses. And we find that as they thought they were going to die, Moses said this in Exodus 14:13. Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Don't worry about the Egyptians. All you need to do is say bye-bye to them. They will be your enemy no more. And certainly they weren't when they drowned in the Red Sea there. Moses said unto the people, and this is good for all of us to remember, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. Do we have a confidence in God? Do we have a trust in God? But in verse number 4, I want to point something out. Paul says, and we have confidence in the Lord Touching you, So he kind of switches it over here and says, we have confidence in the Lord in regard to you. As touching you, we have a confidence. In other words, he's assured that some of these fine folks at the church at Thessalonica could be responsible, they could be respected, and they could be trusted. Now, the church at Thessalonica was a great church. It really was. Much different than the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth was a very uh, carnal church. Paul could not really trust them with much. He called them babes. He said, "Uh, I, I should have been able to feed you with meat now, but you're so immature. And they were very irresponsible, and they were doing all kinds of dumb stuff, even mocking the apostle Paul. And really, Paul didn't have any confidence in them whatsoever, but these folks here at Thessalonica, they were different people. They were a different church. They had responded to what Paul had taught them in such a wonderful way, and they had, they had earned Paul's confidence. Now, yes, trust in the Lord. And I understand all the verses we, we read a moment ago about not trusting people, but on the other hand, God does work through trustworthy people, does he not? Uh, There have been many times in the the decades I've been here that I've had to rely on trustworthy people. In life, you have to depend on people, don't you? And I think we all know trustworthy Christians we all know dependable reliable Christian people who have earned our confidence who have earned our trust they have come through in the past and based on past reputation you know they're a go-to guy or a go-to gal and and you can go to them and they'll come through for you now I'm not talking about putting anybody on a pedestal don't do that They'll always let you down. Don't put anyone on a pedestal except the Lord Jesus Christ. He will never let you down. But on the other hand, there are some people that if you've got to trust somebody to come through for you, you know who they are. And we find them in the Bible here. Timothy was one of them. He had that kind of a reputation. In Acts 16.2, it mentions Timothy, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra. By the way, he wasn't a very old fellow at that time. Might have just been a teenager, maybe early 20s, but he he had something that we in our Christian vocabulary in our Christian shop talk know as a good testimony. We all know what a good testimony is. Timothy was well reported of by the brethren, he had a good testimony. I think we've all heard of JC Penney. He died, I think, in 1907 and, and really started, no, 1970, but he started his, his empire back in, in the early to mid-1900s. Um, he, he had quite a testimony for, uh, for being a, uh, an honest man and did not even drink. He was a teetotaler. And he always drank ginger ale. One time a New York newspaper reported that he had a, a mixed drink, a cocktail in his hand and they mistook the ginger ale for a mixed drink. He read that, and he said, okay, I'll never drink ginger ale again. I'll always drink tomato juice or water if I have to at some function. He said, but I don't want to be a stumbling block to anybody. He had that kind of a testimony. You know, the Bible tells us in Proverbs 22, and in verse number 1, a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. A good name is better than great riches. Now, God's not against uh, you if you're a person of means and and, uh, you've you've been blessed by the Lord and so on, but there's something that's even better than that. It says, a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. Imagine that. There was a preacher years ago who was doing a funeral for a a man that had died in the Bowery, and, and all the Bowery bums, if you will, came to the funeral, and he preached the gospel, and there was... Uh, one particular man who came forward and, and he wanted to get saved and he knelt down with the preacher after the service and the preacher had given him the plan of salvation and, and, and the, the, the bum, if you will, was praying this, this prayer, dear Lord, make me like Joe, make me like Joe. Well, Joe's the fellow who had died, they'd just done his funeral. Preacher thought that's not doctrinally right. He, he nudged the man, he said, no, no, ask God to make you like Jesus. And the man turned back to him, astonished, and he said, was was Jesus as good as Joe? Can you imagine having that testimony? This man Joe apparently had led a number of those men to Christ there. And later on at the burial of old Joe there, these Bowery bums wept like babies as they committed the body of old Joe to the ground. He had that kind of a testimony. That is powerful. There are people in the Bible who have powerful testimonies. Epaphroditus, not a name you want to name your kid, but apparently he really had a great testimony. And in Philippians 2.29, Paul said, Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation. Outstanding guy. Hold such, he says, in reputation. Then there was a fellow in Damascus by the name of Ananias the one who led Paul to Christ. And Paul telling the story years later in Acts 22, 12 said, he mentions in 1 Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there. This man had a good testimony, a good report amongst even the unsaved that dwelt there. You know, there's a fellow in the Bible who had a good testimony and he's not named. We'll have to wait till we get to heaven to find out who he is. But he went with Titus, and Paul said, We have sent with him, Titus, notice this, the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. This man had that kind of a name in all the churches, the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. May God make us a church full of folks with a good testimony who have a good report, and we find in Romans 1, and in verse 8, Paul referring to that, he said, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. They had earned that name. They had earned that reputation. They had earned that testimony. You know, the name Christian is a a, a powerful name, It's a a great title to bear. It's a high name, and it's a a lofty name, and it's a name that we ought to be trying to live up to. Do we have that testimony? You know, we can destroy our testimony by being a sourpuss at work or in our neighborhood. Uh, People think of us, oh yeah, he's the crank at work. Um, We can can have a good testimony by being on the top side and, and being that upbeat person. We can hinder our testimony by by being inward and it's all about me and it's all drama what about me but we can enhance our testimony by being outward and caring about others we can be an encouragement to others and be known as a good Christian we can seek out the needs of others and try and meet them and it will enhance our testimony we can guard our tongue and when we do people know well, I can trust them and they can have that confidence that Paul speaks of here. When, when we're not troublemakers but peacemakers, we have a testimony of being such. When we seek out attention or when we are showboats or when we're prideful or we're blowhards, we have a bad testimony as a Christian. When we work behind the scenes, when we volunteer for things... We have a good testimony. When we show wisdom, when we share our faith, and there are 101 other ways that we can enhance our testimony, God help us to do that. In Third John 1.12, it mentions Demetrius hath good report of all men and of the truth itself, yea, and we also bear record. This Demetrius, we don't know much about him, but he had a great testimony amongst all men. And then there was Philemon, not really mentioned much. Teeny little book, one chapter named after him. But we find this in Philemon 121. Paul says, Having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say. Paul says, I have confidence in you. This is what I'd like to see happen. And I I don't think I have to worry about it with you, Philemon. You'll, You'll come through. I have that kind of confidence in you. You know, there's a Bible principle that to people who are responsible, you give responsibility. And as they come through, you give them more responsibility because they've shown themselves worthy. And I think everybody knows somebody like that. That you can invest your time in them or your, your treasure or your talent in them. And it won't be time lost. It won't be a waste of time. You know, the Bible actually mentions those who we ought to really invest in and try and nurture along and bring them up the ranks. We find in Second Timothy 2.2, Paul says, "...the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also." He said, that's the crowd you want to invest your time in. Now, on an encouraging note, let me just say, anybody can be that person. You say, well, I've kind of, you know, blown my testimony. That's all right. You can get it back. You can get back that confidence of being a responsible person, of being a reliable person. And, and others will invest in you. There's a principle that to whom much is given shall more be given as they show themselves responsible. So we find here at the church at Thessalonica, Paul writes to this local church, and he says in verse 4, and we have confidence in the Lord touching you. We find here, first of all, the trustworthy saints, but secondly, we see in this passage the total submission, the total submission. Now again in verse 4, he starts out by saying, and we have confidence in the Lord touching you, that ye both do and we'll do the things which we command you. Notice he speaks here of their total submission. We have confidence in you that you will be obedient. Total submission. There was a, uh, an American uh, soldier years ago. He was actually a, a leader in the American army. An officer by the name of Sir Leonard Wood. He received an invitation from the king of France to come over at a particular time and to dine with the king of France. So he showed up on the appointed day, and they ushered him into the king, and the king was surprised that he was there. He he said, Sir Leonard, I didn't expect to see you. And Leonard Wood said, well, uh, you invited me, didn't you? And the king said, well, yeah, but I never heard back from you. He said, back to the king. A king's invitation is never to be answered. It is to be obeyed. Great answer, isn't it? A king's request, a king's invitation is not to be answered or debated, but to obey, to obey. We have a king, by the way. We have a king that we ought to be in total submission to. In Philippians chapter 2 and in verse number 12, Paul says to those folks at Philippi, ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Paul writes to him and he says, when I was there, you were were totally submissive. You were so obedient. And he said, now in my absence as well, you've done the same. John Wesley, who was a preacher back in the 1700s, had a private seal or crest, a family crest that he had made. And it had only three words on it. Believe, obey, love. That would be a pretty good motto to live by. Believe, obey, that's an important word, and love we sing that song trust and obey we're talking about having our confidence in God and being trustworthy saints but we should couple obedience with that trust and obey I think is the way to a victorious life and I think that the word obey or the word obedience is perhaps one of the greatest words in our English dictionary it is that important I think it's one of the first words we ought to teach a child obey Oh, you're not obeying. I find myself, I, I did that for years and my kids are growing up and now I find myself doing that again with the grandsons and saying, now you're not obeying or you need to obey. You know, this is the day and age of rebellion and rebels. And we see it in society, don't we? We, we find it at the, at the home level domestically. We find it in churches. This thing of rebellion, the day and age of rebellion. It's, it's one of the signs of the times. Rebellion, But I think the key to blessing is obedience. And I think any thinking Christian should say, I want to be blessed. I want to be under the spout where the glory pours out. I want to have God's hand on me. I want to see God bless me. What's that take? Total submission. Total submission. John Stormer, that author, said this, Obedience is doing what those in authority request or want. It is the opposite of doing your own thing. True obedience involves doing what an authority wants immediately, respectfully, joyfully, and completely. Obedience requires the submission of the will of the individual to those in charge. True obedience ultimately stems from submission to God. Isn't that the truth? You know all submission really directly or indirectly goes back to God. How serious is rebellion? Well, King Saul in the Old Testament disobeyed God, didn't he? And he tried to schmoozy God, basically with some alternative. And here's what the prophet says to Saul in 1 Samuel fifteen twenty two: Hath the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. You know, we can try and schmoozy God with some alternative as well, but we find here that God takes great delight in obedience over that thing. We think, well, this will kind of fill in for it. No, it won't. God wants obedience. And the successor of King Saul was a man by the name of David. The Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. You know why? Because David knew how to obey. You know, the Bible actually says that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. That's pretty serious. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Now, back here in verse 4 again, Paul says, And we have confidence in the Lord touching you that you both do and will do the things which we command you. Command you. That's a strong word, isn't it? You say, what does Paul get off commanding these folks in that local church to do this and that? Well, he was an apostle. And we could talk about that. But actually, I looked up that word command in my Greek concordance. I don't speak Greek. I'm not a Greek, nor the son of a Greek, but I've got a concordance. So I looked up the word command, and you know what? It's got the word angel in it. It's para-angel something. And we all know that the word angel means messenger, right? And so really the word command here is just talking about a messenger that transmits uh, truth from this person to that person. So Paul is saying here, all I'm doing is telling you what God uh, tells us in his word to do. And he said that we have confidence that you both do and will do those things which God has told you to do. You know, ultimately, spiritually, it all comes down from God. And, and all obedience is back to God. And Jesus Christ had this to say in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Do you love God? Because if we love Him, we will obey Him. We will keep His commandments. And the Bible adds... His commandments are not grievous. They're not a pain. Not if you're right with God. If you're backslidden, they're going to be grievous. If you're lost, they're really going to be grievous. But if you're saved and right with God, they're not grievous. They're a blessing. And by the way, there's a special blessing for obedience. There's a lot of verses we could look at. But 1 John 3, it says, And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him. Because we keep his commandments and do those things which are pleasing in his sight. Do you want your prayers answered? I do. Well, it talks here about whatsoever we ask, we receive of him. Why? Because we keep his commandments and do those things which are pleasing in his sight. Now, this isn't talking about how you try and work your way to heaven, but it is talking about a Christian getting their prayers answered, and I need some answered right now. I'm sure you do as well. By obedience, by doing what we are commanded to do, you know, the nature of a born-again person ought to be to follow God. It's the nature of a sheep to follow the shepherd, right? Now a goat, they'll they'll butt heads every time. That's what the lost will do when it comes to God. But if we're truly a child of God, we ought to be following our shepherd. Jesus said in John ten twenty-seven, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. They follow me his voice by the way is his word the bible and he refers to the saved as my sheep hear my voice I know them and they follow me that's total submission are you following God right now in submission as a child of God can you honestly say with your hand on this bible I am in total submission to God in every area that I know of right now or is there anything you're holding back on as a child of God? Is there anything that you would have to categorize as disobedience right now in your Christian life? I'm just trying to tell you how to get your prayers answered, how to have joy. There is joy in obedience. There are special blessings from obeying. And we've talked about the, the trustworthy saints. How do we show that we are trustworthy? That is by that total submission, that total obedience. There was a fella who was down on his luck years ago in the city of Philadelphia. And we have folks from Philadelphia here. And he was trying to get a job and he walked into this, this brickyard and uh, he went and talked to the owner, Mr. Gerard, and he, uh, he said, can I get a, a job here? And he said, well, let's try you out. He said, see that pile of bricks there? Move it across the yard over to there. So handfuls at a time and wheelbarrows at a time. He, he, he spent all day moving this pile of bricks from there to there. And he punched out and he went home and he came back to work the next day and he said, okay, what do you want me to do today, boss? And he said, well, you see that pile of bricks you moved there yesterday? I want you to move it back there today. There he goes across the yard. It was Tuesday, he did the exact same thing. Wednesday, he hauled them back to the other end. Thursday, he hauled them back to the place they were in the beginning. Didn't say a word. Friday, the boss called him in. He said, there's an auction downtown on bricks and uh, here's what my bid is and I want you to take it down there nobody recognized this new man he actually won the bid and everybody said who are you and he said i work for mr gerard and he got that job of going to the auctions to buy the bricks because he had shown he was faithful in the mundane and the trivial you know the bible says he that is faithful in little shall be faithful in much can we obey in the little things you know we find in in psalm 40 And in verse 8, the psalmist said this to God, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Can we obey even with the right attitude? We find here the psalmist saying, I delight to do thy will, O God, with all my heart and with all my soul. You know, sometimes the will of God contradicts our quote-unquote better judgment, doesn't it? You ever had something to where you saw what the Bible said, But boy, you were just sure that this was the right way to do it over here. Maybe there's somebody here contemplating. You're a believer, but you're contemplating yoking up with an unbeliever. And you say, well, I just just know it'll work out. Well, you're contradicting God. See what I mean by our better judgment? There are a number of times that you are going to have something come along where you say, well, by my better judgment, I should do this. When the Bible says that. Total submission is saying, you know what? My heart is deceitful above all things. I can't trust it. What does the Bible say? I'm just going to obey God. We see the trustworthy saints. We see the total submission. And finally and quickly, we see a tender sentiment mentioned in verse number 5. Paul says, and the Lord directs your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for I call these the dynamic duel: love and patience, the love of God and the patient waitings for the coming of Christ. What he's saying here is is just keep loving as you're waiting. Here's a church that thought they were going through the tribulation. It was so rough there, but Paul says, no, 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 Christ has not come back yet. Uh, Just keep keep keeping on, stay faithful, and love as you wait. We have a motto this year at Fargo Baptist Church, and it's, it's uh, basically taken from Ephesians 5, walk in love, walk in love. Now, as I looked at verse 5 here, let's read it again, just the beginning, and the Lord directs your hearts into the love of God. I said to myself, is that talking about God's love for me, the love of God, or my love for Him, the love of God that I have for Him? And so I emailed Dr. Venom over here, and I said, You're a Greek scholar, and no, I'm I'm not. And which one is this talking about? And he emailed back and he said, There's no way to know. It's very generic in the original. So what is it talking about here? Well, we'll talk about that more in a moment, but there's actually a connection both ways. In first John four nineteen, it says, We love him because he first loved us. See how it's reciprocating there? We love him because he first loved us. So there is that love that God has to us. There is that love that we have to God. And thirdly, there's even the divine love he has that he places within us to love, to love. Now, God's love is a good love. And that might sound really, you know, basic on the surface there. But somebody who really loves God is going to also love goodness, They go together. You're going to love righteousness. You're going to love holiness. We find this quote, it says, the love of God is the love of goodness. God is the good one. He is goodness personified. To love God is to love what he is. Now, the ungodly really can't love God because you have to love goodness to love God. Do you love God? Do you really honestly love God today? You know, I know many folks and they've turned on God. They're bitter at God. They're miffed at the majesty. They're upset with something God didn't do or did do. And, and let me just say that our love for God isn't based on personal favors or lack thereof. It, it never should be. Well, God didn't do this. No, that kind of love won't endure when things go south. Do we have an unconditional love for God. Anything else is a sickly sentiment. When everything went wrong for Job, he did not turn on God, did he? He kept loving God. His wife said, curse God and die. But our love for God should not be based on personal favors or performance or God coming through for us. And, and by the way, actually tribulation should drive us to God, should cultivate and foster and enhance our love for God. I find this verse in Romans 5, 3. Paul says, We glory in tribulations also because the love of God is shed abroad in our heart. Now, there's no question whatsoever God loves us, folks. My concern is, do I really love Him the way I should? That is the thing that, that concerns me because the grand command of the Bible is to love God. In Luke ten twenty seven. Christ says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind. You find that same commandment 10 times, actually almost word for word, love God, love God, love God. So how do we love God? We've been talking about this recently. In Luke 7, 47, we find this woman who did this huge blessing upon Christ. Jesus says, wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many, are forgiven for she loved much but to whom little is forgiven the same loveth little there is a connection between our love for god and our gratitude for what he's done for us how he has forgiven us for our sins we had a pastor stand in this pulpit, I think it was two weeks ago today, and, and preached a, a, a tremendous message on how to love God. And he gave an illustration on this, this business of, of realizing how much we've been forgiven and that cultivating our love for God. And he, he gave the illustration that if you were driving along and you ran over somebody's garbage can um, and they forgave you for doing it, uh, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. But if you ran over their child, their three-year-old, and they still forgave you, How forgiven you would feel. The day after, one of our deacons in the church here wrote me an email. He said, I just wanted to point out how insightful the message was last night. The garbage can three-year-old analogy was actually closer to the truth than it may seem on the surface. For me, the message was profound. It brings up the question of how do I receive the true extent of Of forgiveness especially after being saved for so long the thought of simply focusing on the analogy itself made me realize that this is what does the trick itself it can be argued that we actually did cause the death of God's son and God forgave us in spite of it if it were not for our sin Christ would have no need to die so we caused his death Upon receiving his substitutionary payment, God forgives us of our sins and subsequently of our causing his son to die. So if you're trying to reimagine the true extent of God's forgiveness and consequently love him more, you merely have to take the analogy at face value and realize that you did actually run over God's child and he forgave you. Let that sink in. We did caused the death of God's son and he forgave us thank God for that it ought to motivate us to love him more now I want to add that our love for God really is cultivated by loving others we read in first John four twelve that no man has seen God at any time if we love one another God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us now, I said in verse 5, there's a dynamic duo. There's a love for God, and then there's a patient waiting for His Son. We are all vulnerable to impatience, aren't we? At least I am. Am I the only one who gets impatient around here? Uh, I don't think so. Now, as Christians, we've been told here in these verses, we are to, we are to be trustworthy, uh, we are to obey, and we are to love as we wait for the second coming of our Savior. And folks, I believe it is very, very soon. I know the longer it's been, the more unlikely it seems, but that's part of what the Bible actually says. You know, in the last days, Second Peter 3 says, there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Is he really coming back again? You know, they were saying that in granddad's day and great granddad's day and they were saying that in the 1700s, those iron, iron lung, leather lung preachers were talking about the second coming of Christ back in the 1500s and back in the 700s and, well, here it is, we're in the 21st century, it hasn't happened yet. Where is the promise of his coming? Well, if you're saved, you know he's coming back. You know, there are 333 promises in our Old Testament of the first coming of Christ, There are over 1,800 promises throughout the Bible on the second coming of Christ. Did he come the first time? There is more historical evidence that Jesus Christ walked this earth 2,000 years ago than there is that Thomas Jefferson walked this earth 200 years ago. Oh, he came the first time. There's no question about that. There are six times as many verses that tell us he's coming the second time. So rejoice if you're saved. Your names are written in heaven. And between now and a second coming, be trustworthy. Obey him and love as you patiently wait. I believe that's really the pathway to joy.
1: You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.